we're going to be looking at the job of a pastor. And I'm going to use four specific titles attached to it uh, to try to go through those and understand, biblically speaking, what is a pastor. In the morning services, starting from next Sunday, we're going to be talking about a church and what is a church, why do you need a church, what should you be doing at the church, uh, those kind of things. Uh, but in this particular service, I want to talk about what a pastor is and what uh, you should ex like. What should we expect biblically of a pastor? Uh, and so the four titles we're going to look at are bishop, elder, uh, shepherd, and uh, overseer. Now, bishop is the one that most people would probably most associate with the job of pastor. Honestly, the only reason in the Baptist church we don't really use that title much is because a lot of denominations that have a lot of false doctrine have made that title into something it shouldn't be. Uh, and that's not just on the Catholic side, it's on the other side of stuff. You have both directions where people have made that title into something it shouldn't be, uh, as opposed to just that leader of that local congregation of believers. Uh, and so because of that, I think that's why in general the Baptists and a lot of other uh, churches have shied away from using the term bishop is not because it's a bad word. It's a good, very good Bible word, especially if you understand what it means, but because the average person who comes to church doesn't have the right understanding of it. They have some other idea attached to it uh, because of years and years and years of misuse. The other one then would be elder, and in the U.S., I don't really encounter that much. It's not a word you come across a lot. People don't use it except for in some of your rather strange churches. Uh, here in the in Belgium and in the Netherlands, I've experienced it actually gets used quite a lot. Some churches split it off to be a separate job from the pastor. Some people use it as a title for pastor. Uh, and that's a little bit different as well for me. But there's nothing wrong. It's a Bible term as long as you understand it correctly. Shepherd, honestly, is never actually directly said about a pastor in the New Testament. Uh, it is not a term that God uses directly. He uses it indirectly. However, the word pastor is... It is the same word as shepherd. It's it's literally the same word. Uh, and so pastor is a word that's used. Uh, and that's why we're going to look at shepherd is because it's a title that's implied about the pastor. Many times he talks about them as being the one who cares for the sheep and takes care of the sheep. But there's two words for that, pastor or shepherd. It's the same word, same job, uh, but there's two words for it. So we'll be talking about that one. Uh, so that day we'll talk about them interchangeably, pastor and shepherd. Uh, and then the last one, overseer, is only really used once uh, to talk about the, the the head of the church, the pastor, the leader there. Uh, the It's only once used, and that's in the book of Acts. Uh, but we'll talk about that as well because it does talk about the responsibility of a pastor. So that's why we want to get into that one. So honestly, what we're going to look at is how a pastor is called, how a pastor is qualified, how the heart of a pastor and the uh, responsibility of a pastor so that by the end of this month, all those questions about a pastor should be fairly well answered. Uh, and it also maybe should help some men who are questioning and struggling with God's will for their lives as well. Uh, and I think there'll be a lot of stuff here that we can apply and help you as we go through the message. So that's the structure of what we're trying to study in this service. That's what we're taking the break from Romans to look at this. And so I'm just going to begin in Romans chapter 3. And honestly, uh, we can read a big passage, but I only need verse 1. It says, uh, sorry, I'm in Romans so much that you have to understand. First Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse number 1, it says, This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, not, uh, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth his own house well, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule, the house of, rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? 
Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he shall fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the in reproach uh, and a snare of the devil. Likewise, and we won't get into the deacons. We'll pause right there. Let's go to Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you, God, for what you do. We pray, God, that you'd help us as we look at this passage uh, to speak to us, help us to understand these things and be able to take things in our life from this that might encourage us and help us as well. Uh, I pray that, God, you'd help us to walk away today with a greater appreciation and understanding of your word. Uh, we thank you for all this. And we ask it in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when you come to this passage, let me just say this. Next week, we'll go to the sister passage of this in Titus because there's where you get the explanation some about the elder and what's expected of that job. Uh, here you get the title being used just as, as bishop. And the reason why that's complicated for a lot of people is because pretty much any word in the Bible, if you want to know what it means, you just go look it up in the Bible and see how it's used in other passages, and you'll walk away with an understanding of that's what this word means. That's why God uses this word. The issue with the word bishop is that if you go through the New Testament, we can go through each passage where it's used. It's going to say pretty much something exactly like what we just read. Uh, and so it gives you no indication as to what's special about that word. Because when I say a word like elder, you have some things pop in your mind. You think of someone who has proven themselves, who is qualified for their position because they spent the time, uh, they, they, you know, they've been faithful in all these things. When I say a word like shepherd or pastor, something pops into your mind because you know what it looks like when somebody takes care of the sheep. And you have an image of what that is. So you understand why God uses those terms. When I use a term like overseer, you get it. Like it, you, that's the, the like a manager, somebody who watches over stuff and takes care of things. And so you automatically have these visions within your mind of what this looks like and what this means to understand why God would use those titles. Because all of those are titles that, apart from this job, mean something. Like you can take the title of pastor and never be talking about the pastor of a church, and it means something. You can take the title of elder and separate it from the pastor of the church, and it still means something. You can take the title of overseer and separate it from the church, and it means something. But if I ask you to do that with bishop, most people can't do that. Most people have no idea what the word actually means or anything because it's complicated. And the reason for that is because the two main titles that God gives to the job are bishop and elder, and there's a reason why those two are chosen, because they are two of the main titles given to the leaders in the tribe of Israel, tribes of Israel. The issue is, in the Old Testament... The word that is bishop is translated differently. It's a different word. However, if you do the math, you connect the dots, you can figure out which word that is. Uh, and so I'm going to show you what the other word that is synonymous with bishop is. And when you see it, you're going to you know, do a face palm and realize that, oh, it's actually in the verse. I, I could have got that without anybody having to show me because it's in the verse we just read in verse number one. Uh, you just wouldn't figure it out unless you start going around and comparing Scripture with Scripture. So I will show you in a minute what the word bishop actually means as far as in the same comparison to shepherd and so forth. All right, so let's go back then to Acts chapter number 1. It's the only time where you get the word bishop appearing where there's a different context other than saying the man who's in charge of the church. Except for Jesus, there is a few passages where Jesus is referred to as the bishop of the church as well as the head of the church as a whole. So without what I'm getting ready to show you, the easy answers to what the word bishop means, it means someone who's in charge, someone who's the head of something. Uh, someone who's over it all, but okay, that's like overseer, that's also like shepherd, that's also like elder. So what makes it different from those? Uh, and that's why we're going to go back to Acts and we're going to do some math and we're going to figure this thing out here. Because in Acts, you do get the word being used differently. You get it being used in a different context and even more importantly, 
you get it used in a way where it's quoting an Old Testament verse. And because it's quoting the verse from the Old Testament, we can go back to the Old Testament and see what it said there. So with that in mind, Acts chapter number 1. <clears throat> Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 20. It says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. So now you have the word bishop being used in a slightly different context to where you can start to try to figure out, like, what does this mean if we're not talking about the pastor of a church? Like, what is this? What is its equivalent, like what you have with shepherd and stuff? But the beauty of it is this one's really easy now because... Peter is quoting. He's misquoting some stuff, like he's taking two different verses and mashing them together and pretending like they're one verse, but he is quoting directly from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the book of Psalms, to be precise. He's quoting from Psalm 109, verse number 8, where he says, Let his days be few, and another take his office. So what's a bishopric? It's an office. Because that's what he just quoted, was to let another take his bishopric or his office. So a bishopric is an office... And a man that desires the office of bishop desires a good thing. So what's a bishop? He's an officer. Because someone who occupies an office is the officer. So now you have your Old Testament word that is the equivalent of this. And the reason why that's important is because all these other words have Old Testament equivalents. Bishop is not an Old Testament word. You don't have it there. But all these other words, you can go back to the Old Testament and you can learn why God uses them. Because the Jews understood immediately what he's saying when he throws out a word like this. You understand shepherd, elder, overseer, uh, pastor. But when I throw out a word like bishop, you just have to apply to it whatever you have to apply to it because you have no context for what that would be if you're not talking about the head of a church. But for the Jews, they understood it completely. It made perfect sense to them because like all these other words, they had something like that back in Israel. They already had overseers. They already had elders. They already had shepherds. They already had pastors. Uh, God uses those terms throughout the whole Old Testament. Bishop comes out of nowhere and feels like a strange term until you realize it's the New Testament equivalent of the term officer. Uh, and then once you do that, you just have to go back to the Old Testament and ask, well, what was the officers? Because I will go ahead and spoil this much of it, that Israel had primarily three groups of rulers you see mentioned over and over again, like leaders of the, the congregation. Now, what's interesting about all of them is they didn't have authority over the whole congregation of Israel. They were leaders over a certain section of the people. So they had their local assembly of people, their little group that they were in charge of. And of course, the elders, that was normally a leader within a certain family who had proven himself over time. Overseer, you don't see really used as much, but it is there. It's thrown around sometimes. The overseer in the Old Testament was the one who, like, he's put in charge of looking over this stuff and being responsible for these things. Uh, shepherd, you don't see as much talking about people. You do see it. But pastor, you actually, is the one that stands out because pastor is only pretty much used in the Old Testament to talk about preaching. Uh, a pastor in the Old Testament is used in Jeremiah to talk about the one who feeds the sheep. It's the one who feeds God's people, the one who, who takes care of them and gives them the Word of God. Now, most of the time it's used in Jeremiah is talking about bad pastors. It's talking about the ones who don't give them the Word of God. But there are a couple times where he's talking about a good pastor, and this is what a pastor should look like. So like I say all of those are super easy to define, but the three titles... And one of these never carry, it doesn't carry over to the New Testament. That's interesting to me. I haven't looked into a specific reason why, so we're not going to get into that today. But the first one is elder, the second one is officer, and the other one is judge. And most any time God's collecting the leadership of Israel, every once in a while he'll throw rulers in there. But most all the time when he's collecting the leadership of Israel, it's the elders, the officers, and the judges. 
That's who are being collected in order to take care of his people. So judge never gets applied to a pastor in the New Testament. He never he doesn't borrow that and bring it into the New Testament and say, okay, this is another title for pastor. But elder and officer, he does. So those two positions that the Jewish people understood very clearly, like this is what this is, this is what this job should be, this is what you should be doing if you have this job, uh, those two titles that to them meant something are carried over into the New Testament and given to the church. But I'll show you that they're even separated. Like when you get to the New Testament, he makes a clear division between the Jewish version of this and the church version of this. Uh, so I don't want to get ahead of myself too much. I want to go back and talk about what an officer is. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter number 29. Deuteronomy chapter number 29, uh, verse 8 through verse 10. Deuteronomy 29, verse 8. And I'll get there eventually, because apparently 28 is a very long chapter. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, verse number 8. And we took their land and gave it for an inheritance unto the Reubenites and to the Gadites and unto the half-tribe of Manasseh, uh, and kept therefore, uh, keep therefore the words of the covenant. I think I maybe have the wrong verse written down here. Let's see. Oh, no, that's right. Uh, and keep therefore the words of the covenant and do them that may prosper in all that ye do. Uh, ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your captains, your tribes, your elders, your officers, with all the men of Israel. So you have here some divisions. Again, captains doesn't get mentioned much. Captains more of a military thing. And so when they're going to war, that's relevant. Most of the rest of the time, captains aren't really mentioned as much. Uh, you have elders. Again, we've described what that is. We'll talk more about it next week. But then you have officers is the other position. Again, judges, you notice, are not brought up here. Because judges is another title. But the two that almost always pop up uh, are officer and elder. So those are two titles they understand. All right, let's go over to Deuteronomy 31 and verse 28. Deuteronomy 31 and verse number 28 says, Gather unto me all the elders of your tribe, uh, your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears. Uh, for I know uh, that after my death you will utter corrupt, you'll utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside uh, from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger uh, through the work of your hands. Uh, and Moses spake in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of the song uh, until they were ended. So the first, let me, I, I will show you a verse in just a moment that's a little more clear what the job of the officer is. But as we're building to it, let me show you that right now the officers along with the elders are two groups of people that are being trusted with God's commandments. Judges are being trusted to carry out God's judgment, to decide what's right and wrong within the people. That's pretty easy. Captains are, are leading, especially things like battle and stuff. That's pretty easy. Uh, overseers are taking responsibility for stuff. That's pretty easy. Uh, elders, we pretty much can figure that out. You know, we, we got a pretty good idea just by hearing the word elder. But the officers, because again, that's not a tremendously easier word to define than what bishop is. They're both pretty hard for you to put a finger on. Why is that job given that job? Because, I mean, officer just means somebody who has a job normally for us is someone who's in charge in some way or has some office that they occupy. So then what is the office they occupy? We notice that they're one of the two people who are being entrusted with God's commandments, along with, of course, Moses and those men who are in a higher position of leadership, uh, that these men are men being trusted with God's commandments. But what do they do with those commandments is the question. Let's turn over to Joshua. Joshua chapter number 3. Joshua chapter number 3, verse number 2. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host 
And they commanded the people, saying, When ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests and the Levites bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about two thousand cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that ye may know the way by which ye must go, for ye have not passed this way heretofore. Now verse 1 starts with them getting them all this stuff ready, but God told Joshua to get the people of Israel ready by sending the officers to go and give His commandments to them. So if we're looking at what we see officers doing in the Old Testament, these are just a couple verses, but you could run, I mean, it's a very common word in the Old Testament, so you can see this a lot. You can do a word search and read hundreds of verses that show you this. Uh, that as the verses are being used, officers are someone who are meant to be that line between God and His people, that He's entrusted them with His commandments, and they're supposed to convey those commandments to God's people and instruct them what to do. Uh, they're the ones who are supposed to come in and make sure the people are doing uh, the things of God and understand what God expects of them. Uh, so it's someone sort of like a teacher in that way, uh, that they're instructing the people. They're telling them, like, this is what God wants you to do. Today, we're going to cross over the River Jordan. So what I want you to do, everybody, is when you see the Ark of the Covenant moving, you all get in line behind it, but I want you to stay 3,000 cubits by measure because if you crowd it, then you're not going to be able to see it anymore. Because if you're all standing 3,000 cubits away, everybody can see the ark. But if we all get too close, Mike's going to be in the front and nobody can see past him, especially if Safania's standing next to him or Jonas, uh, then nobody's going to be able to see the ark anymore. So everybody step back enough and let everybody else see the ark. And that's what the officers are doing. They're explaining to the groups of people because Moses can't go through a million plus people, two million people and explain to them individually, or in this case, Joshua, I'm sorry. He can't go through them and explain to them individually, okay, now, Richard, make sure you get your spot in the line. Don't get too close. Don't get too far away. He can't go through and do that with each person. But there are people who've been entrusted with God's commandments to go and explain those to the people and officiate what is happening. As you see officer officiate. I mean, the words normally have something like that where it's pretty easy once you start connecting the dots. They occupied an office. They are officers and they officiate. They go in and they handle the things of God and make sure the people are doing what they're supposed to. They instruct them. They teach them. They do all this stuff. And then when you start thinking about what the word bishop means, like if you look up the definition of the word bishop and you just take away all the religious baggage that people have put on it over the years, that's what it means. It means someone who has an office wherein they officiate and they are in charge of making sure stuff goes the way it's supposed to go and teaching the people and instructing the people and all this kind of stuff. That's the job. So like I say, it, I made it maybe more complicated because I could just tell you that's what the word means, but I want you to see it in the Bible. The Bible defines this for you, that the word bishop means officer, and an officer was someone God put uh, as a connection between him and the people so that he could explain his commandments and what he expects of them, to officiate the people and take the time to teach them and show them what they're supposed to do uh, so that they know how to serve God and know what God expects from them. So if you ask what my job is up front, I mean, honestly, bishop's a good title for it. Like I say, I told you why we don't typically use it, but for sure it's better than calling me father or any of these other crazy things people call me sometimes. I, you know, at least it's a Bible term. Uh, but with that said, when it comes to the word bishop, you understand my job as a bishop of this church is to officiate this church, is to make sure this church is doing what God ordered it to do. If we were marching in that line that day, it would be my job to make sure you were standing 3,000 cubits back, that you're not too close and crowding it so everybody else can't see what they're doing. Uh, if we're applying that today, it's my job to make sure that we're going out and reaching the city of Ghent with the gospel and trying to reach other people, uh, that we're serving God and practicing the word of God the way we're supposed to. It's my job to officiate this church. I mean, it's, again, straightforward when you see it in that light. 
the other layer I see about the bishop that's interesting me or the, or the officer in this, and it's also something true of the elder, you notice, uh, is if we go back to Numbers chapter 11. Because here's the thing I want you to notice. The position of elder and the position of officer existed before God, uh, let's say, ordained that within the people of Israel. They already had people they looked at as elders. They already had people who were officers. In fact, the officers that they had prior to Numbers chapter 11 seemed to be people that the Egyptians had put over them, that it's your job to manage this part of Israel. And the reason I say that is because when Pharaoh gave the commandment that they were to double their work, uh, but they weren't going to get any more material, or that they would keep up their work, but he was going to take away the material, sorry. Uh, when Pharaoh gave that commandment, it was the officers who were grieved by that and realized that how am I going to make these people do their jobs? How am I going to make these people continue to produce if we don't have the materials to produce? The officers were the line between uh, the Egyptians and Israel. They were the ones who it was your job. You're over this group of people. You officiate them and make sure they do their job. So the Israelites were already used to that because they already had it. They had it while they were in bondage in, in Egypt. But as they go out into the wilderness, you notice here in Numbers chapter 11, God makes this an official position for them. Uh, it's something where it's like, okay, we're going to go ahead and we're going to do this right. We're going to do something different here. It's not just people that the Egyptians put over you. They already had elders, people who they trusted to lead their families because they had proven themselves over time. But you notice God calls together 70 of those elders. He calls together these officers, and he does something very interesting in this passage. Numbers chapter 11, verse number 16. And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men uh, of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and take talk with thee there, and I will take of the Spirit which is upon thee, and I will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. So up until this chapter, whenever we're talking about officers, it would seem we're talking about men that the Egyptians put over them. If we're talking about elders, it's men that the Egyptians have put or men that they've put over themselves. But from this chapter on, you notice something changes, that it becomes an official position where God says, bring these men to me, I'm going to hold them responsible for how they're leading you. Up until this point, I mean, it's interesting, from Exodus till now, God doesn't talk about them. They're, not a, they're, they're a man-made position, so to speak. But from this point on, God holds them accountable for what they do in the nation of Israel and how they lead the people. From this point on, it's a very common term that pops up over and over again. Even in Joshua 24, when he calls the people together and say, Choose you this day whom you'll serve, but as for me and my house will serve the Lord. Who does he talk to first about all of this? The elders, the officers, the judges, the people who are supposed to be in those positions of leadership, the ones who are responsible for the, the wickedness that has happened. Uh, and so you see from this point it becomes something special and I think the answer as to why is seen in what we just read up until this point God had put a spirit upon Moses and I want you to notice he doesn't seem to indicate in any way that he's talking about the Holy Spirit when he says this he's talking about a spirit, the spirit of Moses a spirit to lead if you understand you can have an excellent spirit you can have an angry spirit you can have a, a wise spirit you, your spirit is part of who you are uh, it's a part of you that defines who you are and how you react and relate to everything around you and so forth, especially how you relate to God. So within Moses, God had given him a spirit, a drive within him, a way that he functioned, a way of being, uh, that he was a leader. He just he had a, a burden for the people. He was willing to lead them. He was willing to officiate them. He was willing to take control, uh, to care for them, to do all those things that needed to be done for those people. But by Numbers chapter 11, it got to be too much for him. 
See, if you don't know this story to know what happens in this passage, Moses gets so depressed and overwhelmed and stressed by having this million-plus people constantly bother him. I want meat. I want water. I don't like where God has us going. I don't like manna because it doesn't taste good anymore. I don't like this. I don't like that. Whatever they can complain about, he gets so wearied down with the complaining. And you want to know something that wearies down every leader? That's it. It's complaining. But he gets so wearied down with the complaining that he goes to God and says, God, if this is what I have to do, if I have to put up with all these people, it's better you just kill me. I'd rather die than put up with this another day. And that's where he got to. Moses loved them. I mean, you understand Moses loved these people so much that even after they sinned with the golden calf and turned their back on God the way they did, Moses said, God, kill me instead of them. If it's possible for me to die and go to hell and take their place, I would rather do that than for them to be destroyed. That's how much he loved these people. And he loved them like nothing you can imagine. But at this moment, it was just too much. He just could not take it anymore. They had taken everything they could take from him. He couldn't bear any more complaining. And you see that even this is only a band-aid because eventually what happens with the water and the rock is that the complaining gets to him to be too much again. And I personally believe, you don't have to agree with me, I personally believe the reason why it's too much at that point is because he's just lost his sister uh, and he's not ready for a bunch of people coming and whining and complaining about everything. He has his own personal problems. <coughs> But saying that, what you see with Moses in this passage is that God says, I'm going to take a portion of that spirit you have, that willingness to love these people, that willingness to oversee these people, that willingness to officiate them, to feed them, to do all these things that you're doing for these people. And I want you to give me 70 men and I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to give them that same spirit, that same willingness, that same drive to function like this. And so God puts it upon them. <coughs> And so from that point on, you see the elders and the officers as being something different than what they were before. It's no longer a man-made position. It's something that God has instituted within the people of Israel. And now they have a responsibility to God directly because he's put that within their heart. All right, if you follow that a little bit further in this same chapter, let's drop down to verse number 24. <coughs> Numbers chapter 11, verse number 24. And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto, uh, unto, <coughs> unto him and took the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. Here's where I want you to know something even a little bit different about this. The spirit he's given them is not directly a spirit to prophesy, but it is a symptom of the spirit he's given them. The spirit he's given them, we told us earlier in the passage, it was a spirit of leadership. Uh, it's a spirit like what Moses has. But the immediate indicator that God has really done this, that he's put this calling upon them and put something special within their heart, is that they begin to prophesy. All right, let me show you. So I'm not going to run through the verses on prophecy because I don't. we have a lot in this message. I don't have time to go talk about prophecy too. But when you look at what it means to prophesy, most of the first, this is the first time it's ever used, uh, or one of the first time it's ever used. I think it's the first. Uh, most of the first time it's ever used in the Bible, it immediately precedes God putting a spirit upon someone that then causes them to do that. He gives them a spirit uh, that then moves them to give that prophecy. Saul's an example of it. You have others. But most of your first time you see this happening in the Bible, you see God putting a spirit upon somebody that then they get up and they prophesy. Now, here's the thing where people get in trouble with what it means to prophesy. Most people think immediately, oh, he's talking about prophecy. He's talking about telling the future. And while that is a significant portion of what prophecy is in the Bible, 
the word prophesy simply means to proclaim the word of God. It means someone who, under as we see with this, it's showing under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, or in this case, a spirit God has put upon them at least, these people are proclaiming the word of God. Now, the reason why I'm showing you that is because it's very interesting when you get to the New Testament, when the word prophesy starts coming up again, it's always preceded with somebody receiving the Holy Spirit. Somebody gets the Holy Spirit and then they begin to prophesy. Now here he, he makes clear, he's not directly talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about a spirit that's upon that person, just a, a natural way that this person is ingrained to behave. That Some people behave wisely, some people behave foolishly, some people behave this way and that way. This spirit of leadership is something he's put upon them that Moses had before. And now he's putting it upon these men. But you notice in the New Testament that this becomes directly connected to the Holy Spirit. And sort of like how tongues are given a few times as evidence and a token that God has done something in someone with the Holy Spirit, prophesy is used in a similar fashion. That in the Old Testament, God has them to prophesy as a token or evidence that He's using this person. Uh, and in the New Testament, He has them to prophesy as a token of evidence of what the Holy Spirit is doing to use them. Uh, and so I'm not going to get too deep into the prophesy, prophecy, all these words and that stuff, because again, there's enough to keep us busy. We don't have time for that. But just to give you an understanding, this was a spirit that led them to proclaim the Word of God to people. So we already know that the job of the officer up until now has been to go and declare, like, this is what God commands. I'm officiating to give you His commandments, instruct you in this, and teach you in what to do. Now you see part of why that's connected to the job, because when he puts them in this job, he also gives them a spirit that allows them to communicate the word of God to people better. <clears throat> and then verse number 28 through 30, I want you to notice it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of the young men answered and said, My Lord, Moses forbid, uh, forbid them. And Moses said unto, them, uh, said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the people uh, were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses get him into the camp, uh, he and the elders of Israel. And there went forth a wind. Uh, we'll, we'll stop here. It's, you got what I need from this. You notice what Moses' answer to Joshua is because Joshua gets upset about these people prophesying. And you know he, he wants everybody to only listen to Moses. You're only supposed to listen to Moses. He's the only one that has this connection with God. And Moses said, I wish God would do this for everybody. God didn't do it for everybody, but he says, I wish God would do it for everybody because Moses realizes something. He could pick whoever he wants. He could go through and say, okay, I like this guy. I like that guy. I like this one. You're going to be leaders. But unless God puts something within the heart of that person to make them a leader, unless he changes the spirit of that person to make them a leader, it's not going to work. Unless God puts something to give them that ability to communicate his word more effectively and know how to give that to people, it's not going to work. They'll be doing it entirely within their human ability that they naturally have, not something that God has given them. And so Moses says, I would to God that he would do this, but it's up to God what he does. That's why he says not to forbid them. And the two men stay in the camp and continue to prophesy because uh, Moses said, don't forbid them. If God's giving them the message, let them communicate to the people and speak to them because I'm not going to get in the way of what God is doing. Now, there's a reason why God tells you to try the spirits, because not everybody who claims that God's given them uh, a calling to preach or a call to minister, these things, not all of them are telling you the truth. So God says to try the spirit of what they see and see if it lines up with the word of God and it matches the Bible. If it doesn't, they're a liar. Uh, that's why you notice the measurement for a prophet is not just whether their prophecy tells the future. If you go back and read the rules, we talked about that the other day in a, one of our Wednesday night messages about what is a prophet. If you go back and look, you'll notice we always think about the rule where he says if a prophet gives a prophecy and one time it fails, he's a liar, uh, don't listen to him. But that's not the only time God gave a rule about the prophets. And the other time he gave it, the requirement wasn't so much about whether the, the, the future is told, 
the prophecy is whether or not they say something that contradicts the Word of God. And when you go over to the New Testament, how does God tell you to try the spirits? He tells you to look at whether they're saying something that would deny Christ as, as God himself or as Christ coming in human flesh or anything else that would deny the Bible. Because uh, there's multiple passages talk about that. <clears throat> so now, the reason I bring up the stuff about the Holy Spirit, I want to make that clear to you because I've showed you Old Testament stuff. I've showed you in the Old Testament what an officer is, what a bishop would be, uh, how God used them, how God equipped them, what God did for them. How does that apply in the New Testament? Because not everything carries over one for one like it does in the Old Testament. Uh, it's not the same. There's a lot of similarities. There's a reason why God used the titles is because the Jews would immediately recognize these and take away from them information that they needed, but it's not one for one. It's not like you can just copy and paste what this job was here and put it over here because the church is not Israel and Israel's not the church. So we don't function the same as what Israel does. Uh, we don't have all the same stuff they do. So it's different now. So what's the difference then? Well, if we go over to the New Testament, let me first emphasize that you'll notice with elders and officers, and I have that passage. I'll, I'll talk about those verses more next week because they're more to do with elders. But I want you to notice that the words elders and officers are distinguished as being different when you get to the New Testament. Elders, I'll give for example, he defines the elders of, of Israel as being different. He says the elders of Israel said this. Now, at the same time, he's talking about elders within the church, but he specifies when he's talking about the elders of Israel, he says, and the elders of Israel said. And you'll notice he does the same thing with officer. He notes the officers, Israel still had officers, but they're like officers of the high priest and so forth. They're not officers that are connected to the church. Their authority does not extend there. So when we get to the New Testament, what does that officer look like? What does that bishop look like? What is, how does a man get into that ministry? How does God equip him the way that he equipped those officers before? And I think the answer really simply comes from 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. 1 Corinthians chapter number 12, we should know this passage. So let's say it. It's one of those that should just stand out in your mind. It's about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter number 12, and this time verse number 4. It says to us, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administration, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given the Spirit by the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge. By the same Spirit to another faith, by the same Spirit to another gifts of healing, by the same Spirit... Uh, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, discerning of spirits, to another, diverse kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one uh, and that self-same spirit, dividing to every man severely as he will. So let me understand. I'm not going to get into like the a lot of stuff about spiritual gifts. I just want to understand something very simple from this passage. What God is telling you, if you understand 1 Corinthians 12, is that we are a body. Now, he's talking to a local church. He's not talking about the, the church, the body of Christ as a whole. He's talking to a local group there at Corinth. And it's very clear if you've read the letter, if you, if you think that's strange when I say this, because you apparently have not read First or Second Corinthians uh, or much any of the rest of your New Testament. Uh, but he's talking to a local group of believers there at the church of Corinth. And he tells them, look, you guys are a body. Right now you're divided over a bunch of silly stuff. You're carnal. You're acting like babies. But you're a body, and a body needs to function together and be healthy. Each member needs to support the other. You know, the, the, the heart needs to pump the blood to everything else. It, you, you can't just remove the heart and the body be healthy. Uh, even the parts that may not seem as necessary uh, as the rest, you need them. I and mean, your big toe may not feel that interesting to you, but you try walking without it and you'll miss it. 
uh, you know, every part of who you are is important in some way. And he's saying your church is like that as well. But that's the context. What he says in the passage we just read is that the Holy Spirit equips everybody within the church differently. So some people, they have a, a knowledge about them that helps them to understand the Word of God, or a wisdom about them that helps them to understand the Word of God and to teach it to you. Some people, that's what the word by wisdom would mean. Some people have the ability to take the Word of God and have the wisdom to apply it. Because that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the ability to take the knowledge you have and apply it. So he says some people have that ability. They can take this knowledge, this, this Bible, and they can apply it to your lives and make it so that you understand it and know what to do with it. Officer, I mean, honestly, I'm not, that wasn't my point. That's not actually why I brought it up, but that is an officer if we're talking about it. Uh, he says some people have the word by knowledge, meaning they just have an ability to, to memorize and, and have the, the scripture there within their heart to hide it. That's what knowledge is. It's the information that you have. Some people have a gift of faith. Some people have, uh, of charity and giving and things like that. But he goes through and talks about this and says that everybody has been equipped for whatever job God wants them to do. Whatever job God is leading you to do for Him, He will equip you for that. He will give you the right spirit to be able to do that through the Holy Spirit. So all those men who prophesy in the New Testament, they got that ability through the Holy Spirit. All those men who teach the Bible, they get that through the Holy Spirit. All those men who do whatever, all those ladies who do whatever for God, they get that through the Holy Spirit. Because here's what makes a spiritual gift a spiritual gift. It's not that the gift is supernatural in and of itself. It's that it's supernatural to you that you didn't naturally have that ability to understand the Bible the way you do now. You didn't naturally have that ability to care for people the way you do now. You didn't naturally have that faith that you have now. You weren't naturally so sacrificial in giving. You were not naturally someone who could just take the Bible and open it up and make it come to life to people. You didn't have that naturally speaking. But the Holy Spirit equipped you with that, and that's why it's a gift from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean nobody else in the world can do that. There's some people who can do that in and of their flesh. There's plenty of people who are smart enough that they can sit there and go through the Bible. Uh, I don't want to get into that, but there's a guy right now who's very famous that he puts a lot of videos online and stuff. He doesn't, if he's got saved, I hadn't heard about it yet. He's a super intelligent man. And so he starts explaining the Bible and people really get interested in it. But at the end of the day, his opinion doesn't matter because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit to teach him. But he's proof that a man can, with just his natural intellect, get a lot of information out of this Bible and show you how to use it. It's not something that in and of itself is supernatural. It's supernatural and the Holy Spirit is the one who puts that in you and instills that in you. That's what makes it a spiritual gift. So if we saw God equip His officers in the Old Testament so they'd be better at proclaiming the Word of God to people and leading people, we should assume that He's going to do that in the New Testament as well. And that's what He's teaching here if you're paying attention. But I want you to notice if we keep going that that's not the only place he teaches. In fact, one of the most important books of the Bible for pastors is where he teaches this. Let's go over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter number 4, verse 12 through 14. What is, who is Timothy? Timothy is a young man who grew up with a Jewish mother and a Jewish grandmother who greatly loved and feared God. His father was obviously, I mean, he's... Half Gentile, so his father must have been a Gentile if his wasn't his mama. I mean, one of them has to be. Uh, so you have this man who his father's a Gentile, his mother's a Jew, his mother and grandmother taught him to love God, even though his father didn't. And so you have this man who, when Paul comes along, Paul leads him to Christ. He looks at him like his own son in the faith, and he uses him greatly to, to make a difference for the cause of Christ. So Timothy is primarily functioning as a pastor in the New Testament. You see him in a few places where he's still working kind of like a missionary, like Paul will take him and say, okay, I want you to go over here and help this church out for a little while or that church. But for the most part, what we know him as is as the pastor of the church at Ephesus because he eventually settled down at Ephesus and he pastored that church for a very long time. 
Uh, and so Timothy, we know him as a pastor. We know this letter is being written to him about being a pastor and how to pastor his church where he's at, which is the church at Ephesus. We know the members of the church at Ephesus. We know the church is held inside of the home of Aquila and Priscilla. We know a great deal about that church. And what does Paul say of Timothy? 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. <laughs> Neglect not the gift that is in thee, uh, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. And we'll talk about that more next week. Uh, meditate upon these things. Uh, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, uh, for in doing thou shalt both save thyself and them uh, that hear thee. So he has a gift that involves him meditating and learning the Word of God and proclaiming that Word of God to other people. And he is a pastor. Sounds like his gift is an ability to understand the Word of God and teach it to other people and officiate those people so that they can learn God's will for their life and to learn the Bible for themselves and all these things. But that's not the only time he says this. Let's go to Second uh, Timothy chapter number 1. Second Timothy chapter number 1. And we'll talk about the laying on of hands by the presbytery next week because it's more attached to what we want to say about the elder. Second uh, Timothy chapter number one, verse number twelve. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the forms uh, of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and in love, which is in Christ Jesus, that good thing which uh, was committed unto thee by the keep of the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. We're talking about his gift that the Holy Spirit's put in him. Uh, this thou knowest, that they all which were are in Asia uh, be uh, turned away from me, of whom are Phygelus and Herm uh, Hermogenes. Uh, the Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesephorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when the, he was in Rome, he sought me out every, uh, very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he uh, may find mercy. Actually, I'm probably reading more than what I meant to on that passage. But uh, What you see is that he has a gift within him that's given him by the Holy Spirit. And again, if you're looking in the context, he's talking about him being a preacher. I mean, he's, verse 11, Wherefore I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Uh, and then he says, for which cause I suffer these things. So the context is Paul talking about this gift. You have a gift like what I have, and his gift starts with him being a preacher, apostle, and all these things. Uh, that he has a specific calling as an apostle. That's something that Timothy couldn't have, but a preacher and pastor and these things he could. But let's also look at Paul's gift. Uh, first, Let's go back to 1 Timothy, this time in verse number 12. Actually, I'm sorry, I read the, the wrong passage. Uh, I was reading from verse 12. That's about, I'm supposed to be reading that in 1 Timothy about Paul. Uh, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter number 1 and verse number 6. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the affliction of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is given us uh, in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now is made manifest the appearing of the Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. So again, Timothy has a gift within him 
that in the context has something to do with giving the gospel to people, has something to do uh, with pastoring and teaching people. It has something to do with all of that because he's talking about him being a fellow servant in all of this and also participating in the things that Paul says he's called to do. Now, let's see what Paul says about himself. And I have it written down as 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. I'm starting to doubt myself. I think maybe it was 2 Timothy chapter 1 because it's very similar to what we just read. Uh, no, it's here. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 12. Uh, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a, persecu a persecutor and injurious, uh, but I obtained mercy because I did, uh, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Christ, uh, Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which shall, should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, uh, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee. So he's still talking about the same thing. Uh, which went before on thee, that thou mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, with some having put away uh, concerning ha having concerning faith, have made shipwreck, uh, of which is Hymenius and Alexander, uh, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So, with Timothy, you have multiple passages now, wherein Paul talks about his gift to be a preacher. Timothy having a gift to be a preacher, Paul having a gift to be a pastor and teach people, Timothy having a gift like that. And he's warning him over and over again, study your Bible so you know how to do this. Study the show thyself and prove a workman need not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. That's context. This is 1 Timothy. It's all part of his letter. 2 Timothy, it's all his letter. So study to show yourself approved because you have a gift that was put on you and we laid on hands. The laying on of hands will explain that next week. But we did this and we confirmed you in this gift that God has called you to this. And you have this calling upon your life, just like I have this calling upon my life. Make sure you exercise it. Don't waste it. That's what that means. Make sure that you establish it in yourself and you settle it and you know what God's called you to do. Make sure you use this gift. Make sure you study and prepare yourself for this gift. All these passages are saying those things over and over again because God had put something in the heart of Timothy that made him qualified to do this, something that within him was a calling to this ministry. And then... We'll go over to Ephesians chapter 3, uh, and this is somewhere that Paul mentions his calling. I want, that's why I want to bring it in, because Paul keeps connecting the calling of Timothy and the, uh, the gift of Timothy upon himself. He keeps saying, you mean you have something similar here. Uh, so Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 7. Wherefore, I am made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. So how did Paul become a minister? Because God gave it to him as a gift. Now, part of the context of that uh, is that Paul didn't deserve it because of all the evil he had done, but God had mercy on him. But the other part of it is we know the gift that was given to Timothy was by the Holy Spirit. So he has a gift that God's given him that allows him to minister uh, the grace of God unto, uh, unto me by effectual working of his power. Unto, verse 8, unto me who am less than least of all saints is a grace given to me that I should preach. So what's grace? Grace is a gift. Grace is something you cannot deserve. It is a gift. So the grace is given unto me that I should preach. So this gift that he has within him is one that he should preach, that he should be a leader to the people, he should uh, minister as a servant to the people. All these things we're seeing throughout these passages. 
uh, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world uh, hath been hid in God, who created all things by Christ Jesus. I think I missed the last half of that verse. I should preach uh, among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he had his specific place he was going to preach, but it was still a, a ministry, a gift to preach. Uh, it was a gift to be able to take God's word and give it to people uh, is what he was given. It was a gift to officiate with these people by communicating to them what God expects from them and helping to orchestrate them in the right direction. Now, I say all of that to show you that in the Old Testament, that's what an officer was. New Testament, God takes that title and brings it over for some reason. There has to be a reason. And the reason, I believe, is because he's showing you uh, that the same way God called out men and gave them a spirit that would make them better uh, at doing this, just like some people have a spirit that makes them better at caring for people because they're more compassionate, more long-suffering, they're more merciful. You don't Half of you don't have that, so you know some people need that. Half of you couldn't work in the nursery because we wouldn't have any babies living at the end of the service. You'd shake them by the time uh, they cried the third or fourth time. Not everybody has a spirit of, of gentleness that allows them to deal with people that way. Not everybody has a spirit that allows them to put up with certain things. Everybody is different. We all have different abilities, different gifts, different ways in which we are equipped to do these things. Same thing, children's ministry. All the stuff that we do around here, not everybody is equipped the same way as someone else. Honestly, the... The requirements you would have to run a sound table are dramatically different than what you'd have to take care of children. Because while both of them require patience, it's a different kind of patience. One is being long-suffering with children and compassionate and teaching them and knowing how to take stuff and put it on their level so they understand it, to have that wisdom to apply it to them. The other is having the, the patience to not smash the computer uh, and not get tired when you've tried a hundred different ways to get the sound out and it doesn't work. Uh, but no, you have to have a technical ability with that that you don't have to have to do a lot of other ministries. So every ministry has different things that are necessary for the person. And if we believe the Bible, we believe God equips people for those ministries he puts them in. We believe he equips them for especially the things he calls them to. And we're seeing with Timothy that he had a gift. And this is, I mean, Timothy is the example of a pastor to us in the Bible. Literally, the letter that tells you how to be a pastor is written to Timothy and Titus, uh, two of which are written to Timothy. So you have this pastoral epistle being written to this man, telling him how to pastor his church. He's the example to us, and we're told the reason why he's able to do this is God gave him a gift to do this. Well, how did that gift come about? Well, the Holy Spirit is working in his heart and equipping him and preparing him to be able to do these things. That's why he's able to have the understanding and things he has about it. That's why he's able to communicate it to you and explain it to you in ways that you think, oh, I never saw that before. It's because God put something in his heart and put it in him to go study and learn how to do that stuff. Uh, but it's not something he came across naturally. I'm telling you that of myself. There's where I'll get a little bit personal in things, and I have to close, but when God called me to preach, you have to understand, I had spent most of my life as a bully, most of my life as somebody who had failed school because I didn't refuse to get up and talk in class. I was somebody who would not talk about stuff. I was very, like, you won't believe this, I was very quiet and shy. I didn't talk. Uh, but that's the kind of person I was. Like, Lori always looks at Josiah and says, this is what you were like when you were little. And I says, it shows what you know. You obviously have no idea. Because I was more, I, I was the mumbling thing that Hannah does where you can't understand half of what she says, but the shyness of Emily. Uh, that's where I was as a child. Like, my brother had to translate for me for the first five years of my life. Uh, that's after I started speaking, not before. Uh, but uh, my brother had to translate for me because people couldn't understand me. And even then, I would tug on my mom just like I see Emily pulling on my leg and stuff and be quiet. And that's why that's the one part of Emily I don't believe. Lori claims she was like that, but I don't believe that she got that from Lori. I believe she got it from me. 
I think all this running around, look at me, look at all these tricks and stuff I can do that the other two do. That's what they got from their mama because she still acts like that. Uh, but uh, no, all joking aside, when I look at myself, I can tell you that when you ask me, Pastor, how do you know how to, uh, to teach this, you know, to, to make that application? I didn't have that. When God called me to ministry, I was not able to do that. But I can tell you, as soon as I surrendered that call to preach, God started equipping and growing something within me that was I didn't have before. The same way he equips people for any ministry or job, what he calls them into. Uh, and God began to do something in my heart to prepare me to be able to do that better. And that's why I believe, not everybody will agree with me on this, but I believe that preaching is a calling. I believe that men don't just decide there needs to be preachers, that somebody should go tell, and so I'm going to go do it. Because there's preachers out there who do that. There's people who decide, okay, I don't know whether I should be a welder. You know, Should I be a doctor? Uh, you know, I heard that uh, seminary was an easy school. Let's go to seminary. Uh, and so they go and they get taught how to do this, and then you notice that they struggle their whole life uh, to actually be an effective pastor. Like They can tell you what the Bible says. They have plenty of knowledge. Just like somebody who went to school about electricity can tell you everything, but if they've never worked on the job, they still don't know anything about it. Uh, they have that, but the difference is they work on the job and still have that because they're missing one of the key ingredients, and that's that calling that God puts in a man's heart. And God even gives us some indication of what that looks like. Now, the passage, I'm going to share one passage with you because this is a passage that spoke to me. And that's Acts chapter number 9 where Paul's on the road to Damascus and he's asking God, Who art thou and what wilt thou have me to do? And Jesus' answer to him is that I'm Lord Jesus who thou persecutest. But he says it's hard to kick against the pricks. And so I'm giving this as a measurement for you to know when God's calling you to do something, whether it be ministry or something else, as a measurement to know that God's doing it and you need to stop fighting him. Because for me personally, I went at 12 years old, I got saved. By 13 years old, I was already feeling that calling that I needed to be a preacher. I was res very resistant to it because my life had been always in the contradiction of that. It had always been something I never thought I could do it. And so I was very resistant to that call upon my life. I refused to accept it. Uh, and so for two years, I fought God, and I was miserable to the point where I was suicidal at times. I wanted to take my own life because I couldn't imagine uh, you know, living another day like this because there was something pushing me and, and stirring within me that I needed to surrender to God, and I needed to go do this job, but I refused to do that. And so as I fought against God, I was miserable, but I didn't understand why until somebody preached what it means to kick against the pricks. And he explains that when a man is hurting an ox, he takes that long stick called a go. The point of it's sharpened. It's called a prick. They push that against the arm of the ox and nudge it in the direction it's supposed to go. An ox that doesn't want to listen, that's stubborn and rebellious, will kick back and that prick will stab into its arm. And the more it kicks back, the deeper it'll go. The harder it kicks back, the more it'll hurt. Uh, and you just keep doing this and you're hurting yourself because God's pushing you one way and you're kicking back the other way. That's what it means to kick against the pricks. And for me, I realized the reason why I was miserable, the reason why I would sit there in my floor uh, as a 13, 14, and 15-year-old boy and cry because I wanted to take my life because I couldn't stand it any longer as a safe person who was in church every week who had everything you could ask for. By that point, I went from being the bully to being somebody who was very well-respected in my school, who had friends, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it wasn't just people coming to me for protection. You know, Now they were my friends because they actually wanted to be. Uh, I, all that stuff changed in, in just those couple years, but I was miserable. My environment was perfect, but I was miserable. And I couldn't understand why until I realized I was kicking against the pricks. And when I stopped fighting with God and stopped trying to go my way and do things my way, suddenly it was just like the, the, the pressure was relieved. It was like the stick was drawn out of my arm and all that damage I had done started to heal. Uh, and I was able to recover from the damage I had done to myself. And I can tell you something, there's no question for me. I know God called me into ministry. I can't stand to sit down. I can't stand to not do it. Uh, I 
listen to God. And if he ever sets me down, I'll sit down. But it's the hardest thing in the world for me just to listen to somebody else preach sometimes because it's in my bones. It's in my soul that I want to do that. And that's where I say God gives us something that I think does actually explain a little bit of what it feels like. And that's in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 20 and verse 9, when he said his word is in my heart as a burning fire. And that's what I can explain it as. When you get the word of God in your heart, the Holy Spirit stirs you. It a lot of times feels like a burning fire. But for a preacher, I'm telling you something. There is a burning within me to tell you the Word of God. The reason why I have a list three years long of things I want to preach to you is because every time I come to a passage, I want to share it with you. I want to teach you this. I want you to know what God's will is for your life concerning this passage. I want to officiate that and help our church to do better in that area. That's what happens every time I come to a passage. That's why I have a list three, four years long of stuff I want to preach to you. It's because every time I come to something, there's a burning in my heart that I want to give this to you. And so I believe that's what the call sort of feels like. And I believe the call, when it's rejected, feels like you're kicking against the pricks. But if you don't believe yet that God calls men to preach, let me give you one last passage and I'll close on it. And I'm not going to expound upon it much either. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. We said that when God calls somebody, it means one of two things. Either He's calling them to salvation or to service. That's what we said the other week when we talked about what it means to be called. We mostly talked about salvation, but we said sometimes He calls men to service. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 21. Timothy had a calling, and I don't think he was talking about salvation. I think this is what he was talking about. Because Paul told Timothy he was called to something. 1 Corinthians, 21, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world uh, by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Gentiles foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the, uh, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than, man, uh, than men. For ye see your calling, brethren. How that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught the things which are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So in this passage, there is a calling, the first half of it, and the second half of it, he says, you're chosen. We said calling last week could refer to either the call to salvation or the call to service. Chosen is about service. That's what we showed last week. When God says he chose somebody, it's the choice of what he's going to do with somebody after they get saved. This passage ain't talking about salvation. It's talking about service. He's saying, I have called men to go and preach the gospel because it's the gospel that will save people. I've called men to go and preach. And he said, I didn't call many mighty to go do it. I didn't call that's I mean that was the context, right? It was preaching the gospel. That's why we started a little bit early is to get the context. The context is about preaching the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles. So in that context, he says, I've called men who are I don't call the mightiest of men. I mean, let's apply it. i I mean I was big and strong for my age, but there's plenty of men in this world who could have beat me. Uh, however, they, anybody in this room could have probably beat me back then. I mean, as far as grown men, not the young people, but uh, at 12 years old, I was already quite tall for most of you. But uh, but the thing is, I wasn't the mightiest, not in presence, not in strength, not in the way I presented myself and nothing. I was a very humble person who honestly was shy and sitting in the back. What about wise? Well, that's about as dumb as a box of rocks. I mean, I was failing most of my classes. 
but uh, after I accepted that call, I became an A plus student. Uh, so something turned around overnight. Uh, what about Noble? Well, I mean, if we go far enough back, I'm sure my family goes over to England, you'll find somebody noble over there. But most of my family were criminals. Uh, most of my family were criminals and every wicked thing you can imagine. My point is, when you start looking at this passage, God says that he doesn't look for the smartest men to serve him. Why? Because he's going to equip them himself. He doesn't look for the mightiest men to serve him. Why? Because he's going to equip them himself. He doesn't look for the men who are the most noble or have uh, all the respect of people around them. Why? Because he's going to equip them himself. He doesn't need all of that. He just needs somebody who's willing to surrender that call in which he's called them to go and give his gospel to people. He doesn't need you to be the biggest and the strongest. He doesn't need you to be the smartest. He doesn't need you to be the one that everybody falls at your feet and wants to hear what you have to say. He doesn't need any of that. He needs a willing vessel who is willing to accept the call and let him do a gift within your life where he equips you and prepares you for ministry because it is a calling. And the reason why so many people fail and get out of it is because they want to do it because it looks fun, because they think it's important, because they care about souls, but not because God called them. And I'm going to tell you, if you're going to stay in something like this, it needs to be a calling. It needs to be something that God has put within the heart of that person, and then he will equip them to be able to do it better. So if you understand why I'm standing in front of you as a pastor today, next week I'll tell you about qualifications and how I spent years preparing for this. But if you want to know where it all began, it began with a calling that God put in my heart, wherein God began to deal with me uh, and convict me and show me that I needed to preach his gospel. I didn't like it, didn't want to do it. I was rebellious and stubborn to it, but that's the calling that God put in my heart. All right. Father, we thank you and praise you, God, for what you do. We pray that you watch over us, help us to serve you. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings and for your goodness. I pray that you just speak to us, Lord, in all that's said and done. I pray that, God, you take the thoughts of this message and stir them in the heart of every person here. Uh, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for all these things, and we ask it in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As we get ready to close out this service, I'm going to ask you those. I'm sorry. I'm going to ask everybody to stand. I can't put my book. Okay. I'm going to ask everybody to stand. Page 251. We're going to sing Almost Persuaded uh, as a song of invitation. As we do this, I'm going to encourage you to come spend some time at the altar praying. I know the message was about the call to preach, but God has things on your life He's calling you to do. He has things in your life that He wants you to do. He has a will and a purpose and a plan for you. Uh, so I'm going to encourage you as we take the time to sing this song that you come to the altar and talk to God about what His will is for your life. Everybody can do that. It uh, doesn't matter where you're at. You need to know what God's will is for your life. So page 251, almost persuaded.